you're turning here, I want to tell you about uh, Chick-fil-A. We don't know very much about Chick-fil-A because it's a restaurant that doesn't have any restaurants here in, um, in Rockford. has one in Chicago. But it is a, a, a restaurant that's heavily influenced by the founder's Christian belief. He's a Southern Baptist. And their official purpose statement of Chick-fil-A is to glorify God by being faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us. Right there, front and center. To be, to be faithful steward, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that's entrusted to us. And secondly, to have a positive influence on those who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. We want to glorify God, they are shut down on Sundays, shut down on Christmas, shut down on Thanksgiving. Um, Truett Cathy, 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 who founded the company, said, our decision to close on Sunday was a way of honoring God and of directing our attention to things that mattered more than our business. To say, we're going to shut down on Sunday. There are more important things than business and making a dollar in life. And as God has prospered Chick-fil-A. I'm not sure you know this. I didn't know this. Until I looked into this a little bit. In 2010, Chick-fil-A was the industry leader in average sales per restaurant. Beating McDonald's, beating Burger King, beating Wendy's, beating DQ. Per restaurant, Chick-fil-A had more sales than all of the others. McDonald's was second. Think about that. Even business closed on Sunday. They prosper that much. Maybe we ought to figure out what like Psalm 91, right? We dwell in the shelter of the Most High. He will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Maybe we'll figure out if we put God first that God will bless us in all things, right? Well, in recent months, of course, they've been in the news. They've been embroiled in controversy. June 16, 2012, around Father's Day, uh, a man named Ken Coleman has a weekly radio show and he invited him on. He knew... Um, the, the president and COO, Dan Cathy, he knew that he was a family man, wanted to talk about family. It's kind of a family-oriented thing. Asked what he learned from his dad and what he's learning from just being a, a father, how he can press it on the business. And regarding the issue of fatherlessness in our society today, here's what Dan Cathy said, president, son of the founder of Chick-fil-A. I think we are inviting God's judgment on our nation when we shake our fist at Him and say, you know, we know better than you as to what constitutes a marriage. And he's just, you know, he's talking about dads and the importance of dads, the importance of family. He says we're just we're inviting trouble when we say that. And then during another interview with the Baptist Press, later on, he said, our company is very much supportive of the family, the biblical definition of the family unit. We are family-owned business and family-led business. We operate as a family business. Our restaurants are typically led by families. Some are single. We do... We want to do anything we possibly can to strengthen families and we are very much committed to that. That's kind of the essence of the provocative nature of his statements. And then the firestorm came. Right? How many of you had heard of the firestorm at Chick-fil-A? Many of you, right? They've been under, under great attack. Restaurants have been picketed. People pledged, I'm never going to eat at Chick-fil-A again. Business deals have been dropped. Politicians have entered the fray, even in Chicago. And Alderman... Joe Moreno has said, I'm going to fight their plans to bring a second store to Chicago because they can't be saying and believing these things and yet having us support them as a city. So much for tolerance, right? You need to learn that people will talk of tolerance and yet the only people that they are intolerant of is those who proclaim there's one way to God. It's the intolerance of tolerance. 
calls have been made for people to boycott the restaurants. But on the other side, there are people who have called to say, hey, patronize their business in a twisted sort of way. Check this out. Um, Chick-fil-A has been united with Westboro Baptist Church. I'm not sure you remember Westboro Baptist Church is the church that uh, pickets funerals of fallen military men claiming that uh, the United States government's support of homosexuality has caused these deaths and they cause great toil and anguish for grieving families. Totally unnecessary, totally unloving, totally ungracious. And yet they say that's the same thing with Chick-fil-A. Even though Chick-fil-A isn't discriminating who it serves, they'll gladly serve anybody regardless of how they live because they want to provide them with uh, uh, an enjoyable service in the restaurant as they seek to glorify God. Well, Chick-fil-A is only one illustration of the culture wars that are happening here in America. We are in a culture war today. Culture war of the family. We're in a culture war seeking to understand and define what family is, what is marriage. We're in a culture war seeking to understand the worth of a child. The abortion issue is huge. We just are in a culture war today. It's not new to our day at all. Jesus, in His day, was in a culture war as well. There were many in His day and age who were trying to downgrade the sanctity of marriage. And there were those who failed to embrace the worth of a child. And in all these things, whenever Jesus encountered such things, He was always pro-family. He was pro-marriage. He was pro-children. And that's what we see in Mark chapter 10. My title and message today is Jesus is Pro-Family. So it's a text talking about how he is pro-marriage and how he is pro-children. It's my outline. Pro-marriage, verses 1 through 12, and pro-children, verses 3 through 15. Let's read the text here. Mark chapter 10. And getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house of the disciples, they began questioning. They began questioning Him again about this. And He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. And they were bringing children to Him so that He might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus saw this. When Jesus saw this, He was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to Me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And He took them in His arms and began blessing them, laying His hands on them. My first point here, Jesus is pro-marriage. We see Jesus here in verse 1 changing His geography. He got up there, get, went up from there to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Ever since chapter 9, verse 33, we see Jesus in Capernaum, up, up in Galilee area. 
But now he's moved south into the land of Judea and then he crosses into the land which is called Perea. The Greek word paran means beyond. And so the region beyond the Jordan to the east of the Jordan was called Perea. And that's where Jesus then went and he traveled. And by the way, Jesus would never travel north again. His ministry in Capernaum and Galilee, his Galilean ministry was finished. Now he would go, chapter 10, Mark chapter 10 is called his Perean ministry. And then at the end of chapter 10, we see him down in Jericho, which is just over the Jordan River um, into Israel. He's going to go up the Jordan Road, up the road to Bethlehem. He's going up to um, yeah, Bethlehem, Bethphage, Bethany, Jerusalem. He's going to enter this holy city of Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11, then for the Passion Week, which he will be killed. But this is Perean ministry. And in Perea, he did what he did everywhere. Crowds gathered around him. Verse 1, again, they gathered around him. This was his custom. He began to teach them. Jesus was primarily a teacher. He was a preacher. And the crowds loved to hear him. And on this occasion, as he was teaching, someone came with a question. The question is in verse 2. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it's lawful for a man to divorce a wife. This is the marriage question. This is the divorce question. During, during the days of Jesus, there was debate. There was debate about whether you could get divorced, whether you, what were the grounds of divorce, what, what was it? There were different schools of thought. Some were more conservative. Some were totally liberal at that. Uh, we'll get, get back to that. Um, but these Pharisees have come. Apparently, they look for some clarification on the issue. Jesus, you know that there's a debate about issue of marriage and divorce today. And, and what's your view on things? Is it lawful to divorce anybody at all? Who's right? Uh, the conservatives or the liberals? Which school of thinking is right, Jesus? Well, I don't think they were really looking for clarification on the issue. I, I don't think... But fundamentally, they were looking to resolve that. I think most Pharisees had it in their mind what their practice was and what they believed. I do believe that they were trying to test him and trap him. And it all has to do with geography. It's no accident that this question comes up during Jesus' Perean ministry. Okay? If you don't understand, think about it. Do you remember what happened in Perea? John the Baptist lost his head in Perea. Do you remember why he lost his head? Well, remember, there's a story about the feast and the, the daughter of, of Herod's wife. Herod reigned in the region of Perea. His wife's daughter came and danced and pleased everybody. And Herod was so pleased with this, he said in the presence of all, right, ask whatever you wish. I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Ask what you want. And um, when he finished, she, she said, I want the head of John the Baptist. And he wasn't through with that event because he was somewhat akin to John. But because of his oath, because of his dinner guest, he was unwilling to refuse her. The king sent an executioner, commanded him to bring back the head of John the Baptist. So you say, okay, now why did, why did Herodias' daughter make this request? Well, because Herodias herself um, told her to ask for John's head. Why, why would Herodias want John's head? Because she had a grudge against him. Why did she have a grudge against him? Because of John's preaching. And what was John preaching? Mark chapter 6, verse 18. Turn back there. Look what John's message was. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John was preaching out against marriage and divorce. 
and saying, kept saying continually, this was his message, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod, it's not lawful for you to have her. That's why he was in prison because he was preaching that. And why was he saying that? Why, why was he saying that it wasn't lawful for Herod to have Herodias' wife? Well, because Herodias used to be married to Philip. But then Herod met Herodias and something happened. We don't know what happened, but we would call it today an affair. And we would call it something happened, maybe immorality. And, and Herodias divorced Philip so as to be able to come and be married to Herod. And he said, that is absolutely wrong. It is unlawful for you to have her. And rather than just sweeping this under the table and overlooking the sin of the king, John continued to preach. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That's why he was in, in prison. Now, maybe Herod's skin was thick enough that he could endure John's opinion. didn't really bother him too much. Maybe Herod was even contemplating repenting. Look at chapter 6, verse 20. Herod was afraid of John knowing he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed. But he used to enjoy listening to him. Maybe there was some conviction there. Maybe he says, I need to continue to hear this. Maybe I need to continue to think this through. Herod kind of kept him safe. But Herodias didn't like John at all. She felt very threatened about his constant haranguing about their unlawful marriage. And she knew that the only place where a marriage certificate would be safely written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist. And so eventually she got away, the head of John the Baptist, on a platter. She got rid of her enemy and her marriage was safe. That all happened in Perea. And so then the Pharisees come up and say, huh, well, Jesus, what do you think about marriage? Right, right verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I think there's a big trap they're trying to set up for Jesus. I mean, they always did this, right? They, they brought questions to Jesus to try to trap Him. We will see that when we get to Mark chapter 12. When they, they bring people... Look at Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Right? When, when they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Him in order to trap Him in a statement. Trying to trap Him in what He was, was saying. Maybe they, they might just get Jesus to falter in what He said. In fact, that's exactly what's said here in verse 2. The Pharisees came up to Jesus testing Him. Trying Him. Trying to see if He's going to say something that might get Him imprisoned as well. It's not that His comments, it's not that His views of marriage were hidden at all. He talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount. What we have recorded, probably other places as well. Um, but I think the test is this. Maybe Jesus will say something to, um, to, that would get back to Herodias, that would put Jesus in prison, and maybe their dream of Jesus had on a platter might just become a reality. Well, Jesus answers with typical tact and wisdom. He wasn't going to be trapped. He was far too wise for that. He did what we should do, right? Verse 3, whenever there's a controversy, whenever we have a question... We should always look to the book, right? He answered them and said, what did Moses command you? I love how at first he didn't just spout forth his answer. Rather, he went back to them with a question and his question was about Moses. It was about the Bible. And I think we need to do the same thing, right? When we face a question, what did Moses say? What did Jesus say? What did Paul say? What does the Word of God say? And we figure that out. Let's follow in obedience out of love to Christ. But there was the question. The answer came back in verse 4. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They quoted from Deuteronomy 24. 
So the main passage which the rabbis focused upon to figure out what was lawful for divorce or not. And the, the passage deals with a very particular case. Let me just read the first four verses of Deuteronomy 24. It says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance." That's what the Old Testament was taught. That's what they're thinking about. It's a very specific case. Technically, it's talking about the details about a man which he's married to a wife. For some reason, is what Deuteronomy 24 says, he divorces her and she's away and then she remarries. And then whatever happens there, whether the husband also for some reason divorces her or he dies, she cannot come back. So you can't just like, like divorce and go wrong. You can't say, well, I'm bored of this. I'm going to try that. There's, there's none of that. He says, this is what it is. It is is permanent. And yet, even though that's the exact case that was exactly talked about there, there are some other things talked about here. A couple observations. First of all, divorce is a reality in the days of Jesus. I hear they're talking about divorce. We think that in recent days, we've got the divorce problem, but they had a divorce problem back then, thousands of years ago. Second observation, when the divorce happened, the certificate of divorce was written for the protection of the woman. God's always had a place, a heart, for the, the orphans and the widows and the downhearted and the aliens. Those that are disadvantaged culturally. And the certificate helps just to say, okay, I, I'm officially done with this man. This man can't have any ties to me any longer. He can't manipulate me. He can't kind of tie me on. Lead me on. And the certificate helps her to remarry. And so when the Pharisees said in verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They summarize well what Deuteronomy 24 is talking about. Divorce a reality. Write this certificate up. Now, in Deuteronomy 24, there was just one reason given for granting divorce. Listen again. Verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Here it is. Some indecency. Well, that caused all the the questions and some schools of thought tried to really look at that and tried to figure out was this what kind of reason is this for for divorce? As one, the uh, the school of Hillel, following Rabbi Hillel, he took this uh, for some reason, some indecency. He took this to mean for any reason. If you find any reason, some indecency in your wife, you can divorce her. If she burned your food, you could divorce your wife. If she spoke to a strange man, you could divorce your wife. If she spoke too loudly, you could divorce your wife. And he just said, broad, right? For any reason. Now, another Rabbi Shammai, on the other hand, saw the phrase more restrictive. He, he, he put it there as immoral, right? Adultery, if adultery takes place. Because in, in uh, the law, even if you're an adulterer, you'd be killed. But when the mercy is there, the, there is a separation. There's a, a death already. He reasoned. 
But I think that even in Deuteronomy 24, the issue is that Moses isn't telling the exact reasons for divorce. He's just saying intentionally broad, if for some reason, whatever happens, you divorce. Here's what needs to happen on top of that. Now, when it came to choosing which was correct, William Barclay said, well, human nature being as it is, was the laxer view which prevailed. So, in other words, human nature, we're sinful, Let's take the easy view. Any, any, any divorce for any reason at all. That, of course, is not the case. Josephus, the Jewish historian, believed that. Just kind of any, any reason at all, you could divorce. But that wasn't the view of Jesus. Beginning of verse 5, he gives his perspective of marriage, and in so doing, he shows he is pro marriage. Verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. Here, here it is. Because of the hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. It's the reality of all divorces. They all proceed from hardness of heart. You show me a divorce, I'll show you a hard heart. You show me a divorce, and more often than not, I'll show you two hard hearts. It's the reality of marriage. When two sinners come together in holy matrimony, Adam and Amy, when two sinners come together in holy matrimony, sparks fly. And only hearts filled with grace and mercy will be able to endure the storm. And with hard hearts, repentance never comes. Forgiveness is never extended. Hurts that are inflicted are never healed. It's like open sores that, that only fester and get bigger and get bigger and get bigger and eventually get infected and start affecting the, the whole relationship. I just say over my years as a pastor, I've seen plenty of marital wounds. And marital wounds are hard to heal. Because you've got two people living closely together. Jesus calls them, we'll see one flesh. And when they hurt one another, the wounds go very deep. You remember the occasion when Jesus entered a synagogue and found a man there with a withered hand? The religious leaders were watching to see if he would heal him or not on the Sabbath. And Jesus was grieved at their hardness of heart. They had a heart that was more interested in finding fault with Jesus than rejoicing in the good that He did. And even though Jesus restored this man's hand, these leaders then went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Him how they might destroy Him. They missed the good that they restored to this man. This man who had a withered hand and couldn't use it, all of a sudden could use it now. And that was good. He was restored back in society. He was healthy now. But because He did it on the Sabbath, it was all bad. And that's a, that's a sign of a hard heart. A heart that finds fault. Fight fault. Fault finding is the fruit of a hard heart. And I don't care how loving and kind a wife is, a hard-hearted husband will always find some more fault there with the wife. And I don't care how helpful a husband is for the wife, the hard-hearted wife will always find something more that, that's not quite right. Because hard hearts will focus on the faults rather than on the blessings upon the good. It's a prelude to divorce. It's a hard heart. That's not to say that a hard heart's a good reason for divorce. It's just the reality of divorce. And, and really, in order to, to sway that course when hearts are hard, the only way is to extend grace to each other and to begin to forgive as God has forgiven. That's where the Gospel of Christ empowers to, to change and transform marriages back from being against each other to just forgiving, being reconciled, requires a soft heart to go. And Jesus said, though, that Moses, because of your hardness of heart, acknowledged that you'll just divorce for anybody. So when that happens, let's protect the woman. Let's provide the certificate of divorce. Let's make sure that men aren't just jumping from woman to woman to woman. 
Jesus said that's not the way God created it from the beginning. This is where He shows His pro-marriage. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. So no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. We see Jesus here quoting from Genesis twice. Genesis 1.27, male and female, He created them. Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then Jesus finishes with this comment of His own, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And here He shows His pro-marriage stance. He says, God has joined us together. Let's not separate a man and a woman. Let's not separate this union. And I'll just say that the implication of becoming one flesh is that whenever that is taken apart is extremely hurtful, extremely painful, extremely sorrowful. Imagine someone taking hold of the skin of your forearm right, and just pulling it back slowly. Ripping your forearm off. I'm trying not to be so brutal. I'm sorry. Just, that's what it means. You're one flesh and now then when you become two you've just severed body parts. That's painful. Divorce is hurtful. I know we have some divorced people here in the room. And it's hurtful. Divorce is often devastating economically. Where, where two households now are created being supported by one income. Sometimes two. It's damaging to children as they witness human beings who can't get along. All the fights. Everything that led up to that. Visitations are constantly a painful memory to things. Even when children are older and out of the house, it still inflicts pain. Divorce affects your friends, affects your relatives, complicates your life. At holiday time, who do you, who do you visit? And, and, and I just say this, not, not to inflict more pain, but just so I know the pain of divorce. And I, I sympathize with the pain of divorce of those who are in this room. And, and I just say... In your pain, run to Christ. Run to Christ. He forgives. He heals. Divorce can be forgiven. Restoration can come. takes time. takes years oftentimes. But there's hope in Jesus. That's the Gospel we preach. But divorce has affected many. At Kids Club the other day. Um, by the way, if you're interested in helping Kids Club, I need some help. Even to, This Tuesday, even, I need some parent to come and just be with the kids. I can't be with the kids alone. Uh, we'll cancel it if no one else comes. So if you can do that, it'd be great. But we were talking through the Ten Commandments. And uh, we've got symbols. One, two, three. You know, right? You shall not have any other gods before me. You don't worship any other gods, too. Um, do not make any idol because two gods is too much. Three. Um, <laughs> i got to get this song in my mind. What is it? Huh? Do not misuse the name of God. Thank you, Andy. He just learned the song this week. He helped me this week. So, right. Fourth, keep the Sabbath holy. Father, honor your father and your mother. Sixth, do not murder. Like, don't pierce anybody. Seven, do not commit adultery. Here's the symbol. Is you got somebody with walking legs just walking away from the marriage. And so that's simplified down for kids. So, so I went around and we had probably about six kids there that day. And I thought, well, every single one of these kids are from a divorced household. They're living right here in this neighborhood. They need Jesus. And I'm just working as hard as I can, just talking to them about, you guys know the pain of that, right? 
There's forgiveness in Jesus, and maybe you'll live in such a way that you can break that pattern of your parents. Because not only their parents, it's their grandparents, and it's, things are a mess. So my heart's for these kids to teach them the Bible and to learn and to grow. And Jesus, when He says, let no man separate, it's for our good. It's far better to face some rocky times in marriage and then to work them through than than to go the seemingly easier at the moment path of divorce, which then will be painful in the end. And Jesus knows this. He's pro-marriage. He's pro-us. He's pro-helping us. He wants marriages to continue because that's how God created the world. Look what He says there in verse 6. He says, From the beginning of creation, it has not been so. Think about it. When God created the world, He created, He invented physics. Okay? We study today. We study to try to figure out what God invented that day. But he invented physics so that light and gravity and mass and energy all work together to sustain the universe. And on that day of creation, God created chemistry. We try to discover chemistry and how chemistry works, but God invented it. How gases and liquids and solids and atoms and molecules work together to sustain the universe. And on that day, God created biology so that water and amino acids and DNA would work together to sustain life. And on that day also, God created the way that we should live, that we might all work together. That includes marriage. In six days, when He proclaimed how marriage should fit together, one man with one woman for life. It's how the world works best. Marriage wasn't some afterthought. Marriage was a way that God said, this is the way the world works best, just like physics. He said, this is the way the world works best. And physics obeys Him. And yet we in our sinfulness don't. And consider the fact that Jesus quoted from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. These chapters in the Bible are foundational to establish God as a Creator. As we establish God as Creator, we establish Him as our authority in our lives. And in our society, divorce become more and more a reality. Over the past century, divorce has steadily increased. In um, 1900, there was one divorce for every 13 marriages. There were 709,000 marriages. There were 56,000 divorces. In 1950, one divorce for every four marriages. And by the 1980s, we were one divorce for every two marriages. It's kind of held steady there um, because many people aren't even getting married now. And then they split up and that's not even being counted. But are those getting married to every two? And I think there are reasons for this increase, but here, here what I would contend is the driving region. I think it goes back to the beginning. What's, what's the foundation of marriage? It's the fact that God created and that God created male and female and that God said, the man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. I do not believe it's an accident. I don't believe it's a coincidence that as our view of evolution and our society has become bigger and bigger and bigger, marriage has gone down worse and worse and worse because the ground of marriage is the creative work of God. And if you destroy the creative work of God, you've undermined marriage and made divorce as rampant and easy as can be. I do believe there's a link there because Jesus linked it back to creation. That's where he goes. And Jesus says, no, Let's, let's not, divorce was not this way. It's not the way God created the world. When divorce takes place, it's because of sin and pain will, will come. Jesus was pro-marriage. He, he wants marriages to stay together. Well, in verses 10-12, through 12, we find Jesus retiring with His disciples. 
And they couldn't get Jesus' words off his mind because I believe that Jesus was being countercultural. I think that his words sounded every bit as countercultural as Dan Cathy's words. President COO of Chick-fil-A sounded in recent days. It just erupts the culture and they're saying, well, well, how is this? In the house, verse 10, the disciples began questioning about this again. And we don't have everything that Jesus said, but we have some. And we know that we don't have everything because even Matthew includes a little bit that this section here doesn't include. He said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another, she is committing adultery. Now, these are, these are pretty strong words. But listen to what it says. It says, in, in every divorce and remarriage, adultery takes place. Right? Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. The wife, if, if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she's committing adultery. Adultery takes place in every divorce and remarriage. Now, now notice here, it's the one who actually pulls away and divorces and remarries who makes that, who's guilty of adultery, right? Does that make sense, right? What is adultery? Right? Walking away from your marriage. And it's the one who walks away and then marries again is the one who commits adultery. We, we just think of adultery oftentimes in terms of just marriage. But even if you do everything that is exactly right, for some reason you divorce, and then you meet someone else, and then you get involved and, and get, get married, we think, well, that's okay, because it wasn't there beforehand. No, Jesus says you still have left for someone else. You are guilty, guilty of adultery. Because you walked away from your marriage. And the question comes up, then, what about remarriage? Is remarriage always adultery? I say no. It will be for the one party who gets joined to another, and that maybe for both parties, they're both guilty of adultery, but there may be an innocent party who has sinned against. The, the person walked away, and, and the one was willing to reconcile, and the other refused. God knows who refuses. For that one, it will be adultery. But then when the marriage is consummated and brought, there's, there's no, they can't marry back again, is what Deuteronomy 24 says. And there's freedom there to be married without any adultery. I think this is what Jesus meant. In Matthew's account of this same thing, when Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And I think it was whoever divorces a wife, unless there's been sexual immorality and adultery already taken place, then you commit adultery. But if the adultery has already taken place, then you're not committing adultery because your spouse already committed that. Does that make sense? If not, you can read my notes on the internet. Hope it, hope it makes sense. But before we go on, just one, one last thing. Just because adultery is taking place in marriage doesn't mean divorce is mandatory. Adultery gives you the right to divorce, but not the mandate to divorce. Remember Hosea? His wife was a prostitute, and she went off, and, and God told Hosea, go and marry Gomer. Go and pursue her, and go after her. Even though... She was a prostitute and unfaithful. Still, reconciliation is better. And I would contend that it's better to reconcile. It's better for you. It's better for your children. better for your testimony. Even if a divorce has taken place, a remarriage is still better before another remarriage takes place. And I just say this. Reconciliation is a picture of the Gospel. Isn't that what Jesus Christ has done for us? He didn't, he didn't join Himself to us when we were righteous. 
We were spiritual adulterers pursuing our own way against the Lord. He didn't call us when we were faithful to Him. No, He called us when we were sinners. And what did He do? 2 Corinthians 5.18 He reconciled us to Himself. He brought us to Himself. Our sin had created a distance between us and the Lord, yet by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, God forgives us of our sin. He brings us back so that we are together so that one day we will be the spotless bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, Revelation 19 when we will be married to Jesus, even though at one time we were unfaithful to Him. And as, as married people rift and argue and separate and maybe even divorce, they come back together, they then show the Gospel. And it's that vertical relationship that God has given to us is to extend horizontally as well. God has reconciled us to Himself. Now we are called to reconcile Proclaim reconciliation to others and be reconciled to each others as well. Jesus is pro-marriage. Let me just touch lightly on Jesus is pro-children. And I'll go through this somewhat quickly. We'll pick up a little bit on this next week as well. Because this, this, this passage is a hinge. It really connects before in the marriage family theme and also connects afterwards. We'll see next week of the rich young ruler. But here we find some people opposing Children, coming from an unexpected source, comes from the disciples. Verse 13, And they were bringing children to Him so that He might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. Now we can only assume that it's parents bringing children to Jesus because they wanted Jesus to touch them. Verse 16, we see Jesus blessing them when He received some kind of blessing from Jesus. Yet the disciples didn't want any part of this. The disciples rebuked them. And you can only imagine what they say, Right? Go away. The Master doesn't want you to come. This is only for adults. He doesn't have time for children. Stay away. We don't want you here. But Jesus always has time for children. Did you catch that, kids? Jesus always has time for children. When Jesus saw what the disciples were saying, He was indignant. Verse 14 says, Jesus saw the disciples were turning away and He was displeased. He was grieved. The disciples should have known better. Look at chapter 9, verse 36. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but receives him who sent me. You receive children, it's as if you're receiving Jesus. And then just whatever, a few weeks later, a few months later, here here are the disciples again, Jesus, they're pushing them away. And Jesus says, No. He became indignant, right? That's he, he became angry, he became irritated. And maybe verse 14 ought to be read, permit the children to come to Me. Don't forbid them, right? Exhorting the disciples. Now, there's time when things ought to be adults only. There are times when children will be bored out of their minds, right? But when it comes to Jesus, children should be welcomed. They should be received, encouraged to participate. Jesus said, right? Permit the children to come to Me and do not hinder them and I say this, if children want to come, let them come. One of my aims at Rock Valley Bible Church is to really create a children-friendly environment. I want children to grow up reflecting then back upon Rock Valley Bible Church knowing that they were welcomed and appreciated and loved. I want them to see and experience and know the joy of Christian community. So when they grow up, when they go away, when they think about church, and maybe if their hearts are growing a little cold, they'll always remember church as a fond place to be. 
I remember the joy that was there. I remember the happiness that was there. I remember how I was always welcome and always able to come. Now, I'm not talking about entertainment where the kids get a show every week. If we try to entertain our kids to death, the world will kill us in that every time. But I'm talking about genuine Christian fellowship with the regular sorts of meetings that build our faith. That's, that's what I'm talking about. That's, the world can never match that. They may try with their soccer teams. And they may try with their theater. And they may try with other different things and avenues and groups of people that get together. But it's never going to compete with the church because the church has got it. I'm talking about Sunday morning when parents see their children see their parents eager to worship and, and pray and sing and sit under the Word. And when children come and listen or are involved in the service and they remember the joy of what they're learning, they, they remember those children's notes. My, my dream is that 50 years from now, Conrad, you're talking about, oh, you're an, you're an elder someday at your church, Conrad. And you're saying, you know what? I remember when I was a kid, the pastor there... He's long since died. He was a little guy. But I remember, I remember, he used to do these notes for us and I used to really appreciate it. Pastor, maybe you could think about doing that for our church. Just fond memories of all the things that the kids are learning. I want them to do that. That will help them and protect them in the future. Talk about potluck after church when the the children see the parents all eating together and look back and say, I just remember we had so much food to eat and I could eat a lot and I could have like five desserts because my mom didn't see how many desserts I was having. <laughs> and it was just a great time and I just love that and, and I've kind of missed that. I'm, I'm just not around a group of people that eat like that. I, wanna, I want them to have fond memories of, of potluck or, or of home Bible studies when the, the children see their parents delighting to come to home Bible study and they, and they were welcome and they're welcome to sit down if they wanted to or they, they play with their friends but they, but they saw the interest and I said, I remember when my parents were so interested in the Bible and fellowshipping with people and now that I'm old, there, there's something to that. I want to be involved in that. Talking about families intentionally discipling their children where the, the fathers are spending time with their sons and the mothers are spending time with their daughters and the, the parents are spending time with their teenage sons, taking them from boys and girls to be men. And I just remember, I remember how active my mom and dad were in, in growing me up and training me in the ways of the Word and the ways of life. I'm talking about families who worship God together in the home with family worship, eager to read the Scriptures and eager to pray together. And they just say, I, I just... I, I don't remember a lot of what I learned at family worship, but I do remember that, that Dad always gathered us together as a family and we, we read or sang or, or, or did something. I just remember that. And the Bible is a priority in my dad's life and my parents' life. I want that to be a priority in my life. I'm just trusting that, that God will put in the hearts of the children fond memories of Rock Valley Bible Church. As they get older, make their own choices in life, Involvement in church will be a high priority, not because of their duty, but because of their remembered delight in what church was. Listen, it's no accident I provide the children's notes each week. I'm trying to engage the children. They can learn. It's no accident I bring the children. We have the children come up here before I preach. I want to honor them. Let the little children come to me. I thought about that. I've been at churches before. They kind of have children's notes in the back and they kind of get them when they come in. And that's okay, but there's something. If the children come forth, it's just a weekly reminder of, you know what, children are important to come. It's no accident I meet with the children after every sermon I preach. It's not, children that, it's not an accident the children are, are uh, free to come, welcome to come, almost any activity of the church we have. Except mostly those they'd just be bored with. Because we're just talking about adult things. Or maybe there's some sensitive men's meetings or women's meetings that wouldn't be inappropriate. But for the most part, children come. Come in the service. That's okay. 
You know, there, there are churches that frown upon children participating in worship service each week. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. I've been to some like that where kids are really encouraged to get off because they want the congregation to be quiet and they don't want any interruptions. They want just things to be perfect there. And children might disrupt that a little bit. Well, we've broken that rule, right? Thankful for the carpet here, that's for sure. Remember, we got, we got these children's notes. Remember when we were at Rockford Christian High School, right? And you guys all know what I'm talking about. And they had, they had the, the clipboards like this, and they're, they're sitting, the kids are sitting there, and, and they're paying attention to me. And they're, they're nodding off, they're nodding off. And they, they go like that, and, you know, and everyone looks around. And you know what? We, we had someone come here years ago, I remember, when we were at Rockford Christian High School. And initially, just kind of all the kids were distracting her because she was kind of more in a church that protected things. And, and then she started thinking a, a couple weeks later. She said, no, the kids are here and they're learning. And so anytime a, a clipboard dropped from then on, or anytime a baby screamed, she said, you know what? The kids are here learning. And that is a good thing. You know, we do provide children's church for some. It's a help for many parents to have the youngest of kids out of here. That's okay. But our kids are always welcome and I just say that we need to have a perspective that, that that woman had is that kids are learning and they're here. And, and kids, when Jesus says, let the little children come, they have much to learn. I mean, kids, kids are learning. I am constantly encouraged by how much the kids are learning through my sermons. I don't dumb my sermons down at all. In fact, if anything, I've been accused of speaking too maturely in my sermons. Okay, Saying some things I shouldn't say maybe that are too mature that young minds can't handle. I don't think at all, oh, what, what am I going to say? These kids, I just, I just speak it straight forth. The children's notes help the sermon, uh, help them learn. As even this past week, Yvonne was at a homeschool co-op when the teacher was asking about something, reminded a couple kids about some sermon illustrations that I, that I had spoken about, and they shared it willingly. Um, I remember many occasions when kids would come up and just... I only get to see glimpses. They, you know, kids don't remember every, everything, right? If adults, you, you preach a normal sermon and the, the issue is that after the sermon, 10% of what you said is going to be remembered. And then a week later, like 1% is going to be remembered. All right? With children, that might be even smaller yet, but they do remember things. So never underestimate the value of profitability of children. They, let them come because they have much to learn. But let them come because they have so much to teach. Verse 14. Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Right? The kingdom belongs to people who are childlike. Verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. Permitting the children to come is good for the children. Permitting the children to come is good for us. Because children picture for us how we ought to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The, the kingdom of God belongs to people like children. And think about children. They're willing. They're trusting. They're wonderfully unconcerned about the burdens of life. They are dependent. They are often joyful. They're always just looking for a laugh. If you, if you notice my son up here, like even today, he's just trying to get me to laugh when we're singing, right? I'm not sure you noticed today, but I was standing there like this, and David said he's tired, so he's sleeping down there. He was trying to pickpocket me today, and so I had to button my, my back button so he wouldn't pickpocket me. But he's he's just he's just looking for joy. He's just looking for happiness. He's just like anywhere. Parents, we have much to learn from our kids. They're open to instruction. 
They're easily corrected when they go astray. They don't hold grudges. Parents, we hold grudges. Children don't hold grudges. They just forgive and forget and let it loose. They don't have any money. They don't have any money. No leverage. They don't have any power. They just come because they come. They love to learn and we have much to learn from children. Truly, truly, verse 15 says, whoever does not receive, a chi- receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Next week, we're going to look at the rich young ruler and we're going to see the rich young ruler is the exact opposite of a child. He was everything a child was now. He was rich. He was powerful, self-dependent, self-righteous, prideful, knowledgeable about all the commandments. As a result, he wasn't in the kingdom. It's no accident that this story about Jesus blessing the children and the rich young ruler come right after each other in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. I think it's got something for us. We'll talk more about that next week as we look at the rich young ruler. Great testimony about salvation, what salvation is. Well, Jesus loves the little children. Verse 16 shows that He took them in His arms. He began blessing them, laying His hands on them. And as the song goes, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Right? Let's sing it. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. I say may we do the same. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the ways in which these passages show how pro-family Jesus is. He just loves the family unit. He loves marriages. In fact, even all of history is wrapped up in one grand marriage when Jesus will marry His church, those redeemed from the world. And Jesus loves children because they teach us much about how we ought to enter. And I pray, O Lord, that we would be like children, just willing and, and trustful, unconcerned about the burdens of life, joyful, easy and open to instruction. May we come to You with no power or leverage or money. God, may we come and, and buy without, without money. As uh, Isaiah says, how everyone is thirsty and come, buy, drink without cost. This is the Gospel. Help us to, to rejoice in that. And I, just, I think of the, the church in the future would be like one big family. Neither marriage nor given in marriage. Right, but we're all going to be brothers and sisters together with God, You being the center of it all, You being our light and being our joy and being our hope. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn from these small families what the big family is like and what it will be like. Help us, O oh Lord, to apply these truths. Let's fight for marriage in our culture. Let's fight for children. Let's fight for the unborn. And God, help us to do so in a, in a right way, the way Jesus did. Just putting forth an example putting forth models of loving children and supporting marriage in whatever way possible. May Rock Valley Bible Church have that as our testimony um, as long as we exist. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.